The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. Kev, we're in tier two, which means officially you and I uh, have to carry on recording this with with you in your place. Mm-hmm. Freezing as well is. <laughs> it's lovely and heated in here, Kev. Well, the equipment gives off a, a lovely sort of warmth, so you could be... I've got a hot air blower, but I have to turn it off because you, you'll no, it makes moan noise, yeah. I would, I would, yeah. I, mean, I don't want to make it sound like you're at an airport just next to a 737 or something, though that would be a nice dream, wouldn't it? But, um, yeah, what was that? Oh, yeah, so you're, you're there, I'm here. Um, and I just, I need to ask you a question because um, Stubby, the local publican, um, is, is struggling a little bit, and you're very good with stuff like this. What is a, a substantial meal? He seems to think, because he doesn't normally serve food, so his plan, his plan is to get some sort of huge gangsters product line going, where he <laughs> thinks, well, substantial could be like three pasties on one plate. Is that, is that substantial, he wants to know? Ask your mate Kev. <laughs> <laughs> well, I reckon that's substantial enough, yeah. It's a complete... <laughs> we, were, we were meant to be... Th- the first Thursday of every month is Dad's Night in Malmesbury, where all of the dads oh, yeah. from school yeah, go out. Yeah. Well, there's only about eight of us. Yeah. We all go and we have a beer. And, of course, we haven't been able to do it for months and 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 months. Feels like months and months and years and ever and decades. And a few months more? Uh, a few more months more. So, um, yeah, none of the pubs in Malmesbury serve food, so they can't open. Um, but the curry house, there's a curry house. So mm. I suggested we go to the curry house. Um, excuse me, mate, can I have 12 pints of lager and a poppadom? <laughs> that's I'll not substantial. No, that's not substantial. <laughs> well, they serve substantial meals. doesn't mean they have to give me oh, a substantial meal. Kev, now, now you're splitting hairs. Oh, the Fujicast. Oh, what did the government do? Oh, <laughs> I'm so angry. He's even speaking over the theme tune this week. He is angry. <laughs> well, no, uh, but actually, you can't go, can you? Because even if you and the dads could go to have your substantial meal, you're not supposed to be eating with anybody from another family, are you? Aren't you? I thought it was just six people, six random people. Well, you can go to Weatherspoons and have a cheap, nasty burger with a hundred other people. Well, and they'll <laughs> snog each other and stuff. Kev, oh, no, Weatherspoons burgers are very nice. I just like to say before the the lawyer's letter arrives. And, yeah, and the last, and the last time I went in there, nobody was snogging me. <laughs> you ain't been to Weatherspoons with me. <laughs> yeah, obviously you've got the draw. <laughs> Oh dear! No, but I'm, I'm. Well, somebody correct me then, because uh, I said to Sam last night, right, all out for an Indian then with our, with our, you know, our, our good, well, two good friends, and she said, uh, no, no, it can't be happening. Sorry, no. Uh, oh well. When do we get to tier one, Kev? Uh, <laughs> I, I honestly. It's just ridiculous. My mum's in Wales. My mum and dad. It's my mum's birthday in a couple of weeks. Oh, yes, it is. And then Christmas, of course. And we're like trying to figure out whether we're even allowed to go and just stand in her garden and stare at her through the window. Because we have the complications of our lot. And then you've got the Wales laws, which are different. And you can't cross one bridge. You can only go over the other bridge. You're not allowed to go unless you're yeah, working. And you can't, if you're working, you can't go with people from a different family. And then you can go for a business meal with, you know, your brother-in-law's <laughs> sister, but you can't have them in your house. But your cleaner can come. You can have your house cleaned. And you can't go to the pub with them. Oh, it's just insane. Stop I can it. come around your house and we can go for a dog walk together. Can we? But I can't stand in your garden. Oh, oh well, there's an idea. Bring Git round. We'll go, we'll go take Git for a walk and um, that could be the podcast couldn't it uh, yeah that would just ruin it though. get on tour <laughs> get 
<laughs> I can see T-shirts. Well, look, um, we've we've played the theme tune. We haven't even talked about photography. There we go. Welcome to Photography Podcast. We're four minutes in. You know who will start to complain if we don't talk about photography. If you are a Fujifilm shooter, fantastic. If you're not, makes no odds. You're still warmly welcome here. There's no tier one, two, or three. You can come in. Um, thank you to our friends, by the way, who've been supporting us on Patreon. And we thought we should start this week, didn't we, Kev, by, by name-checking those that are very, very kind and have been supporting the show. So we have, uh, yeah, we have a handful of people who have yeah. uh, signed up to Patreon. It's patreon.com, Fujicast. Yep. Um, since the last time we did the name check. So we have, in uh, no particular order, apart from the order that they subscribed in, uh, Steve Hall, uh, Tim Helps, Hubert Steve Cole. That's a very posh name, isn't yeah, it? Hubert yeah. Steve Cole, I like yes. that. Luke Bailey, Patrick Fitzpatrick. Patrick Fitzpatrick. That's like being called Kevin, Mc- Kevin, isn't it? <laughs> Paul Gallagher, Lev Petersov. Right. Uh, sorry, Lev Pertsov, Paul McKiln Wayne. Uh, John John, oh, John John, is that your real name, John John? Yeah. Uh, Dennis Lee, good old Dennis in his bunker, yeah. Simon Berry, who I think now owns my um, Microsoft Surface book, Adrian Muscat <laughs> and Paul Deegan. So thank you very much for your continued help and support. These are all people that have bought kit off you in the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon has, definitely. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, I like that. John John. John John. I want to be called Kev Kev. We've got John John. Uh, I mean, that's like something in, uh, what's that program uh, where they all used to come, the Ingalls, where they used to come running down the field. Oh, you must remember it, Kev. Uh, Little House on the Prairie. That's it. Uh, no. John John. Have you made tea, John John? John Boy. Oh, John Boy. Oh, sorry. you're Hi, John Boy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And he'd say, right at the end, wouldn't he? There we go. <laughs> should we do a bump to the front? Because we should really do one of those. Um, or, or maybe two to start with. Adrian Muscat, I think you just mentioned, didn't you? So uh, let, let's let's take I one did. from Adrian. Hi, Kev. Hi, Neil. Up till recently, I was running a video production business, mainly working with corporate clients and government departments. Well, government departments seems the right sort of people to be working with right now. About two years ago, I was asked to film and photograph a wedding, something I wouldn't usually do, but considered it a different outlet for my creativity. So I took on the job with the help of another videographer. Filming and photographing a wedding is something I'd never, ever do again. I realised on the day of the wedding I was more drawn to capturing moments in photos than the filming. I decided after the wedding that I'd focus solely on photography, which brings me to my question. I have a collection of photos from the previously mentioned wedding that I'm quite happy with, although they're not my preferred style of dock wedding shooting. How should I advertise myself without a collection of photos when most clients are asking to see previous work? This is a catch-22 moment, this, isn't it? I've offered to do my first wedding for free. However, it seems most prospective clients are apprehensive about using a photographer with limited wedding photography experience. Any advice greatly appreciated. It's funny, isn't it, that when you... I, I, don't, I think people are um, a little bit nervous about the word free. It's like, oh, what's the catch? It's a bit like when you drop your prices and find out that people much preferred the higher price because there was more trust and value attached to it. Yeah, um, well, it is catch-22, isn't it? And and what I always say to people when it comes to doing things like free weddings to get yourself up and running is make sure it's people you know or it's friends of friends um, because that way you can explain to them fully and, you know, they're unlikely to say, oh, well, you know, I, it was free, you didn't give me what I wanted. 
Um, def- I would definitely never, never advise kind of going onto Facebook and saying, uh, I'm going to do a free wedding, you know, be- to stri- for strangers. Don't do it for strangers. Don't do it for anybody you don't have any kind of contact with or connection with. Yeah. Um, and that way they're more likely to do it and they're more likely to be amenable to it and you're less likely to get yourself into trouble. But yeah, I mean, ultimately you've got to shoot, you've got to shoot, you've got to get those eggs um, to show the chicken or something. <laughs> I think that this this does actually um, bring me round to the subject of shooting for free for friends. Now that's a wedding that Adrian's talking about, but you know, and I'm being a bit cautious here, but just in case they listen, but um, but but you know that I've just had an experience where they um, they took the freebie. They were friends. They took the freebie, knowing my situation and actually being in good jobs themselves. I said, "Oh, we'll just take the eight ten. Thanks very much." And uh, le- left me well, not out of pocket. Well, I will be out of pocket. We frame it uh, out of pocket. So um, that, that's the other. Uh, that's a different side of working for for friends. I know you're you're proposing that it's a good thing, but I, I'm equally sometimes unsure whether it, it's a good thing because it brings a a whole layer of expectation that that your mates may support you slightly more than perhaps they're inclined to. Yeah, well, it is, but you know, it's as long as they they are fully aware. Of course, um, I think your example is slightly different, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately you've got to get pictures. You need to. Yeah. Do you know what I did for my very first wedding, which was a friend? It was a friend of Gemma's. Yeah, I I took her um, and her mum, who was who was kind of the chief decision maker. I had no wedding pictures, so I took a, a portfolio of pictures I'd taken of birds. Oh, I remember you saying. I thought there was rugby in there as well. Oh yeah, there might have been. Basically, there was no weddings, and and I said, look, I don't, I can't, I've never taken any pictures of a bride, but here's some puffins. And they bought. That's right, they bought you, didn't they? There and then. Yeah, yeah, they did it. Um, and it was free, although they did give me, uh, like during the speeches, they said, oh, you know, Kev's done this for a favour, and here's two hundred quid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that that kind of got me up and running. Yeah, and I think my my first uh, my first wedding was for yeah, it was for my uh, my best man at my wedding for his for his brother i think i got the grand total of 200 quid for it or something like that it was mm-hmm. sort of a, a a kind of like a you know or we, we better pay you something kind of notion and and actually it worked out okay when well, 900 weddings nearly later <laughs> yeah um but uh yeah that, i think it's the, the best advice i mean working for free is is it, it comes with um it comes with a cautionary note but it is probably the best way to but, but he's saying that he can't get the free work, though, isn't he? That's the problem. Yeah, well, that's right. But that's what I'm saying. If you if it, if there are people who don't know you, then yes, they probably won't. But yeah. that's why you need to approach people that are friends of friends or your friends um, saw, or our friends. I saw somebody in a in a in a Facebook group quite some time ago. Um, it must have been in a it must have been in a, a bride's group or something. Saying saying you know look I've got no experience. This is the kind. This is very much the same as you with your puffins. This is what I can do. I would love to be there for you. We swamped. Yeah. So maybe that's the way to do it. Right. One more from the uh, the Patreon. Uh, bump to the front, and then then you go for it. Tim helps. Good day, guys. Do you think Fuji should make a medium format X100? Perhaps with a new sensor from the GFX 50R. Blimey, that that would be the largest X100 ever, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, the, the the thing about the the sensor, the sensor inside is a physical size. I, I don't know how many inches it is but you know it's 
it's a lot bigger than the sensor that's inside the APS-C cameras. So you're never going to get a medium format camera in the same size as an X100 body right now. That doesn't mean to say that they will make, you know, they did it with the um, GFX50, didn't they? Um, so it doesn't mean to say they, you know, they won't necessarily not think about a smaller, smaller-ish body with a fixed lens. Who knows? I mean, I really don't know. But yeah, I mean, you're not, you know, ultimately you are not going to get a medium format sensor or uh, we might get in trouble for calling it medium format, even though it's always been called medium format. Yeah. Um, you're going to go, it's not medium format, it's not exactly right. Yeah, I know. You, you, um, it's so large format. Let's yeah. just call it large format. No, it can't be large. It's not large. Large. <laughs> yeah, well, large, you see, large is larger than medium in my world. Trouble is here, though. It's, it's always going to be um, square pegs, round holes, isn't it? You won't get that size sensor inside mm. an X100 yeah, body. Yeah, yeah. But... Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Keep the faith, Kev. Keep the faith. Right. Um, your turn. Um, uh, this is from Asim Khan. So this is from the Facebook group. We okay. have a dedicated thread on there for questions where you wish to answer your questions. Asim Khan, he says, here's a question, uh, which we know. Uh, why do you think people typically worry about a lens being sharp as opposed to a lens having a certain character? I mean, aside from landscapes, a lot of famous work doesn't show images that are pin sharp. Yeah, what a good question. Very good Isn't point. Question. Yeah. That was the first question on our new thread. Right. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah, because you're right, the character of a lens. I, I've uh, been using this, as you know, the uh, the X-Pro1, which I dusted off, took out the uh, took out the, the cabinet, the, uh, the presentation cabinet. I'd forgotten I'd had it. Um, Tim Binder, bless him, sent me, uh, from, all the way from America, sent me uh, a 28mm Yashica vintage lens. And uh, I've put it on the X Pro One, and it's not—it's not tack sharp, <laughs> far from no. it. But there's no. a real—if—if—if if, if you can attach the word character, oh, I love these images coming out of it. Oh, listen, I mean, I sound like an Australian there, don't I? Listen, um, <laughs> you've been there, you, you know. <laughs> uh, this is one of my pet hates. I have to say, it's a great question from Asim um, because this kind of obsession with sharpness and everything yes there is a there there is a time and place when sharpness is essential you know absolutely essential things like product photography um archival photography forensic medical you, you know, there is a time and place for it but you know fine art um uh, kind of um model portfolio stuff yes but that doesn't mean that pictures that are not pin sharp cannot have uh, character and stuff. And I, I've been in so many Facebook groups over the years and forums where, you know, people have, have pulled up images because they're not pin sharp on the eyeball. Yeah. And, and I'm like, yeah, but look, it's got a great moment, an absolute great moment in it. You know, most of the books we talk about on the book review. Yeah, yeah. These, they're all shot, you know, decades ago on film, and, and you know, no matter what resolution you scan it, if you scan it on a sixteen hundred DPI scanner, it's still not going to look sharp, not perfectly sharp, because it was, you know, it was film, and and it just doesn't it doesn't work like that. But those images, they're the images that are in the books people are buying now, not your pin sharp iris image that has no soul and no character, but it's perfectly sharp. Do you remember that book I, I introduced you to a, a little while? Let, um, little while. Let me reach for it. It's Reunions by a guy called Chris. Porsche. Do you remember that yeah. book that I showed you? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So essentially, Chris, um, he lives in Peterborough. He's a he's a uh, paramedic, and for year, for decades, he's been photographing people. And then, um, and and then only recently, well, in the last ten years, he started to to look for the people that he'd photographed originally in uh, nineteen late seventies, early eighties, 
uh, and he looked for them now and recreated the portraits that he'd done when they were much younger to, to how they are now. And I have to say, I, in pretty much every single image that he took um, using a film camera preferred above the, the very, very um, technically much more perfect digital version two decades later. Yeah, you know, and like I say, it doesn't mean that pin sharp images are, are bad at all. It just doesn't mean that. But some images are, you know, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Enjoy. Just make pictures that make people... Uh, you know, I always say to people, a picture doesn't need to be good, it just needs to be important, and them's the rules. Yeah. You, you've, <laughs> you've entered one more competitions, and I, I, I have, and I've never been... Uh, and you have. You've been in that sort of judging pool where you've been watching your pictures being judged and looked at with a, with a magnifying mm. glass. Are they the moments where they, they sort of check on sharpness and stuff? Do they look- um, for some images, yes, but but in fairness to the judges, most of the judges in the in the judging circle are, um, uh, you know, they have good integrity, and so they understand. Like if it's a photojournalistic image, that that's you know, and I say most of them, certainly not all of them. But if it's a print competition, that's slightly different because a print competition is about the actual print as well. So the print quality, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, if it's a very, if it's a fine art picture that's meant to be, you know, very detailed, then yes, sharp. And, you know, they can easily tell if you've just nudged your tripod or you've shot at the wrong aperture yeah, um, yeah. rather than it being because of the circumstance. So, yeah. Well, look at Bre- look at Bresson's stuff. Um, do you remember going to that that uh, the Bresson exhibition? And a lot of it was you looked at it and you thought, well, "That's not in focus. That's 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 you know, much of it wasn't, was it? Didn't matter." I don't. I didn't go to that with you. Oh no, it was Giles. That was my that was my better mate. <laughs> <laughs> that was your proper friend. That's my proper friend. <laughs> not my podcast friend. <laughs> right, one from Simon Jones. Hi guys, a huge thank you for keeping us going during this lockdown number two. Have we kept? I, I don't know. Have, have we kept you going? <laughs> I think we. Uh, you, you probably felt our I feel, frustration. I feel like I'm not keeping myself going much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's not helped by this woof, cold weather either, is it? I tell you what, Kev. My next door neighbour, he is at the moment for for very good reason. Uh, but I, I know he has a sort of darker sense of humour without going into his story. So if he was listening to this, he'd appreciate why I'm telling you the story. But he's in Spain at the moment, in a kind of sort of um, finding himself in a recuperation uh, moment, which is working out well for him. He's been there for about two months now, I think. Anyway, I, sp- I spoke to him earlier today. And he said to me, so what's the weather like there? I said, oh, I'll tell you what, Chris, it's really, really cold. And he said, yeah, I, I knew it was. I said, what, you've been watching the news? He said, no, no, I get a little text in the morning from my wife. And it says, could you put the heating on in the car? Bear in mind, he's in Spain and um, she is living next door in England. And uh, she texts him to say, put the heating on in the car that's just outside the just outside the front door. And and it's not because she's lazy. It's because I think he has the app (laughs) that can do it. But that's how he knows that it's cold and miserable here. That's a car. That's a car and a half, isn't it? Turn the heating on in the car. Uh, I hope Greta's not listening. Uh, anyway, um, I hope you're both faring well in these difficult times. I have a boring kit question. They're never boring. This might be a bit sensitive for Kev. Oh. It's about the 35mm 1.4. Oh, I used to have one of them. <laughs> Which may or may not be somewhere in Neil's kit bag. Honestly, I'll have another look. I did sort some stuff out today. No, I keep I keep offering you this. This is the 18mm. 
Mm. Is, that, is that mine as well? Uh, no, that's definitely mine. Yeah. Have you lost your 18 mil as well then? I don't know. I haven't seen it for a while. <laughs> no, I definitely bought an 18 mil. I'll tell you why I bought an 18 mil. Uh, because of Facundo, that was why. The worst one was the 27. I had three of those 27 mil pancake lenses. I've never had yours. And they just disappeared. No, they, no, 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 no. I just put them down and they just, they're so oh. small that oh, they just right. disappeared. Oh, well, I'd just like you to know yeah. I haven't, it wasn't me. Um, uh, anyway, he says, um, I don't want to wake an old source. Well, you just did. But I'm thinking of selling the 16 to 55 millimeter, which I know is a great quality lens and has done me proud. And I always feel, though, though that the image quality on the 56 and the 23 primes is better. I don't know if it's because uh, I'm meant to think that, but there does seem to be something extra to the sharpness and colours. Oh, we're back to sharpness. I think using the primes makes me think more about framing. And the 35 mil is a nice focal length for family group shots. He's a family photographer, you see, Kev. So my question is whether you think the 35mm is good uh, or as good as the other primes in terms of quality as it's significantly cheaper. The reviews I've read seem to be mixed. Will I regret trading my zoom in? Uh, well, the, for the 35 1.4, I, I think it can't be mixed reviews about that. It's a stellar lens. Mm. It's a beautiful lens. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's Generation 1, remember. So the 35 the 18 and the 60mm macro lens were the first three lenses that launched with the X-Pro1 back yeah. in, what, yeah. I don't know, 2012. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, it's one that came with a metal lens hood. Yeah, it was a great lens. Well, I say it was. It still is a great lens. I know, I'm, I'm trying to peel your name off the lens hood, actually. <laughs> just can't um, seem to get Kevin Mullins off. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, well, you know, if you want 35mm, I, I, like I, I would prefer the 35 1.4 over the 35 F2, even though the F2 is... Cheaper, smaller, lighter, weather sealed. Uh, I just don't think it has the same quality as that 35 1.4. Um, you know, and and the thing is, because that's generation one, they'll stop making that eventually. Uh, maybe they already have. I don't know, but yeah. you know, it's going to be hard to find that lens. And and <laughs> as I find, as I know, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I would have keep kept hold of it. I have to say, yeah. Well, if, if I hadn't nicked it from your room, obviously. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but the thing is, if you swap for a zoom, it doesn't matter. You know, it's ultimately, if you're not using that 35, if you've got that focal, if it's the focal length that interests you and it's in that zone range, then you're covered. I would also say, because you're talking about family portraits, uh, I'm a, I, well, actually, no, do you mean the family portraits where they're all in a, no, he probably means the action ones, doesn't he? I was about to say, if they're, if they're non-action ones, having the zoom is not going to make much difference anyway, because you, you, you're not going to be using it wide open because you're going to be shooting at four, five, six, whatever up, aren't you? Mm -hmm. So that everybody's in focus. But I've just looked at his website, which is great, simonjones.photography, since he asked for a mention. Um, and, and a lot of this is, is, um, is quite action-orientated. So he does need something to be quite, quite brisk in terms of focusing. Yeah. Basically, it's focal length, isn't it? So, you know, the speed is fine on all, both of them. I mean, the 35 1.4 was quite slow to focus in real terms. Yeah. Uh, have we got time for one more little one before we go to the interview? Yeah, go on, Kev. Roll, roll one in. Uh, this is from uh, Chico. Remember Chico? Chico, lived, yeah. Lives in the little town next to the big town. <laughs> That's the one. What's that in the background, Kev? I can hear drilling. Somebody drilling through to you. Uh, it's, it's the hairdressers. I don't know. What really. are they doing drilling in the hairdressers? Someone's got a bad hair day. Uh, <laughs> I'd say. No, bless them. Bless them. The hairdresser's not open. No. So I don't know what they're doing in there. Sound like they're really sort of like drilling down upon somebody. 
they Stay did take still. it very seriously, the hairdressers, rightly so. So they, they're probably having um, paneling put in or something oh, to, you know, with little holes so they can put their hands through and, and do the perms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, Chico, Chico Limjap uh, from the little town next to the big town in America somewhere. He says, what are Kevin and Neil's secret sauce when it comes to marketing? What tools and what processes do you guys do? Mm, go. Well, I mean... Marketing really, it, for me, is two central sources. That's uh, SEO and word of mouth. I don't do, I haven't done any paid. Remember, there's a big difference between marketing and advertising. And there's a big difference between marketing and branding. Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't paid for any advertising. I don't think I ever have for, for this business. So marketing-wise, yeah, SEO, putting, and, and when I say SEO, I don't mean like um, keyword in your, your content to death. I mean, you know, properly building structure and making stuff interesting for people and sharing it and putting the effort into social media and remember the social in social media. Social, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's super important. I mean, really, really important because it's very easy to just think, well, I've got an Instagram page and nobody's liking it. But, you know, they're, they're not going to like it unless you put the effort in as well. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's probably in terms of marketing for me. It's slightly, I've got a slight advantage over most people, I suppose, from the ambassadorial role. So that that's good because, I you know, I get, I get kind of put out there a little bit by them. However, the wedding clients don't give a flying. I was going to say, how much difference does it make apart from the fact that, of course, course all, all, that, yeah, yeah, but all the links coming back to you and the, and the traffic that comes through your website yes. created through the fact that you are in the ambassadorial program That's it, what it, I mean. is going to tickle Google's fancy somewhat, isn't it? Yeah, correct. That's what I mean. Um, but yeah, so the the clients don't, don't care. I mean, it's like we had this conversation last week about um, awards. And would client do clients care about it when you know if your pictures are rubbish, you've got loads of rewards. They're going to go for the people who have no awards, but the pictures are great. Uh, you know that's 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 it's a similar kind of thing, really. When when clients stumble across my website, although I mentioned that I'm an ambassador, they won't care. You know, who cares about that? Uh, and they have to look at the pictures, and it's when they see the pictures and they don't like the pictures, then they go somewhere yeah, else. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I personally think uh, partnerships are going to be more important than they've they've ever been. I, I my my approach was very different to yours, wasn't it? I mean, you went headlong into SEO, and and your site was <laughs> was fantastic for that, and and always known for that, wasn't it? Um, mm. Whereas I went headlong into partnerships, and I think people think of partnerships. If you take the wedding arena, for example, partnerships, people are only thinking of one thing: got to be in with a venue. And yes, that is very important, but it's not as important as it once was. I think ten years ago, being well, maybe uh, maybe not so far. Maybe five, six years ago, even being represented, if you like, by by the the venue was very important because people uh, placed great um, credence in that and would say, "Well, if the venue know you, you've you know you've got to be right for this." But yeah. I think people's buying habits have changed a lot over the last few years, and now that's less important. And they want to go and source their own photographer, and they don't really care. Some people do; it's still very important for them. But a great many people don't really don't really care if you've worked there or not. Um, they care what they see on your website, yes, but they don't care um, where, whether you've necessarily worked at the venue. Partnerships, I think, are really important. So I form partnerships now with those that, um, that, that are, are, are venue suppliers, not just the venue. And before you think, oh, God, that sounds like a really long sort of, sort of hard route in, um, one of my best spending clients of the last 12 to 18 months 
Oh, no, it wouldn't, wouldn't be quite. I'm forgetting, of course, we've had about nine, ten months off, Kev. But mm. <laughs> prior, prior to that was uh, was a client that came through, the um, uh, a hair and makeup artist, um, mm. who is very well connected in uh, a certain part of the city. And so for me, that was a great connection, and that yielded one of, one of the best um, jobs prior to lockdown. So I think those yeah. sort of partnerships are really, really important. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree with that. And, I, and that's one thing I never really did with the, the venues and I wish I had done, um, you know, and, and I think I think you're slightly wrong in that when people go to a venue and they're recommended stuff, they're not, that's not going to help them make a decision. I think it does at that point because mm. it's a little bit like, you know, you go to a venue and they say, right, here are recommended chair cover suppliers this is uh, where you can get your llama from this is your <laughs> chocolate fountain suppliers here's here's three photographers that we work with regularly yeah. you know if they if they're given three photographers they work with regularly they will pick one of them pretty i'm pretty sure of it you know or 90 percent of the time no well so we might have to differ on that one because i think well you mentioned the chair cover person okay most people in their life have uh, just uh, reasonably indifferent about chair covers, aren't they? But if it's photography, you might be more emotively connected with it. So therefore, your friend, um, you know, uh, Stubby from the pub had, had you know, so-and-so photography. And you think, they were cracking pictures. I'm going to go and look at that person as well. Well, you're not as emotively connected with chair covers and certainly not a chocolate fountain. Or the, yeah, no, or, I agree. Or the but I, you know, well, I'm assuming that the three suppliers that they're, they're recommending are good photographers yeah, yeah. so they don't need to you know they've narrowed it down for them essentially yeah so. i've just noticed that drop off a lot uh, and i'm still um I'm, I'm still on venue lists i just noticed that is not as not as powerful as once it was mm. uh, but but there we go um right should we do this week's interview yeah let's go for it well earlier on this year not so long back i spoke with adam johnson or arj as he's more commonly known as within wedding shooting circles and we haven't had a a dedicated wedding photographer on the show for a while now. So as we head toward 2021, with a hopefully more confident tone, if not right now, but for a few months into the year, Adam says some stuff, imparts some knowledge that I think is going to be particularly important in a lovely business phrase, actually, about, about a net. But I don't want to lay down a spoiler. I'll let you hear that as the interview goes along. He's one of the UK's more established wedding shooters now, but like us all... In the social uh, photography arena, this has not been a, a particularly buoyant year. He does have, though, a strong work and business ethic, and as a working photographer, I think he's got much to teach. Adam Johnson. In, in celebration, Adam, of a photographer who doesn't have an about page as such, it's called ARJ Style. Have you tired with reading about people's love of cupcakes? Because it was is refreshing to see somebody actually do something different. I don't know. I'm not, it's not, it wasn't created out of judgment of, of what other people do. Uh, I definitely, there definitely was an element of, the, of, you know, it came out because I thought, do, well, do clients really need to know that I'm a big fan of jalapeno peppers? You know, is that really going to, are they going to book me over the, the next person because I prefer whatever it is on, in our personal life? Or do they really need to know what makes me tick about, about, photography and pictures and and how that's going to translate into their day and what it me really means for them so that's where my about page came from really and why i twisted it around into you know here's everything that i love about photography and how it trans how it becomes pictures at your wedding it, i just didn't think they need to know about me and also you know it's a deeper conversation because the whole ideal client uh, philosophy as well is my ideal client isn't always myself 
So my tastes and, you know, trivial tastes are not really relevant to whether somebody should or shouldn't book me, I think, for, mm. for weddings. I think they should really – I've always thought my the pictures should speak for themselves and then they should think I'm an all right person. You know, that's the, when we meet, they should just think, oh, he's cool. We, we'd be quite happy to have him there. But, you know, I, 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 it came out of really the about pages probably – whenever I launched this website, which I think was 2016-ish. And at that time, you know, I'm a big fan of of York Place Studios also. I'm good friends with them. And at that time, they were one, they stood out to me as photographers who had an ethos. They had a, there was something that sat behind the work that they made and they knew what that was. They knew where that work was coming from and what drove it. And I didn't know that about my own work at that time. So I, so I spent a lot of time really sitting down and thinking, where does my, where do my pictures come from? What is it that makes me tick? What, what is it that makes my pictures potentially different from the next guy? So that's where it, it was a big project, really, personal project to make that about page that mm-hmm. wasn't just about, you know, how many, you know, how many kids I've got or what food I like. Although talking about the kids, I do enjoy the fact that you post a lot about your family. Um, and you're so very good. Um, uh, sickeningly good, actually, Adam, with your images of family. They, they are quite literally a shoot in themselves, I think. Um, a lot a lot of photographers aren't particularly good at being the family photographer, but you are. <laughs> are, you ever, are you ever off duty? Yeah, all the time. Uh, the, the, uh, the thing about my family photography, of my own family, uh, is I don't do it all the time. I'm not, I don't tend to just take a camera into the living room and, and snap the kids or, you know, right now they're, one of them's on his a PS4 and the other one's on his Nintendo Switch. That's yeah. not going to make particularly interesting pictures for me. But I do tend to take it when we do something. So it's more like if we have a day out or if we go on holiday, then I will dedicate some time to taking pictures of it in the way that I like to take pictures. I don't really have any passion for just taking random snapshots. So I never really, I never take pictures with my phone. Uh, if I'm going to take pictures, I want them to be good, and I want it to, I want them to make me a better photographer as well. So I haven't taken any family pictures of the family this year for instance, mm. probably, you know, a handful at best. So I think it's a it's the whole smoke and mirrors of Instagram thing again. You know, I post quite a lot of on Instagram family pictures because I have two Instagrams, one for my wedding work and the rest is just for pictures I take in, yeah. in general yeah. life. And people do ask me that quite a lot actually about whether I'm, they think it's great that I'm always taking family photos, but in reality I'm not. And I, I do, it does tend to just happen when we're actually doing something that I think is uh, worth capturing. So you haven't been shooting a lot, of, a lot of lockdown stuff by the sound of it at all. <laughs> no, and no. I've been made to feel quite bad about that. But the uh, Who, who's, the rea- made, who's made you feel bad about that? Your wife or <laughs> it, not? I've not been made to feel directly bad about it. Right. More in that other people have ah, said that yes. we have a, as, as photographers yes. we almost have a responsibility yes. to capture this time, and I haven't felt that responsibility. I've almost felt the opposite in that it's not particularly a time that I, I personally want to remember for <laughs> forever because I haven't mm. enjoyed it. So. It's interesting. I get the I get the whole angle that it's a, that it's an interesting time, but I'm quite happy for it to come and go and not really remember it. Mm, you sound like me. You're going to have a massive party the day we find a cure <laughs> or vaccine. I'm having a big fireworks display. You're invited, Adam. Actually. Adam. Oh, thanks. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. How did it all start for you? Um, let, let's let's take photography. Is it going to be one of those typical? Well, my dad gave me a camera stories, or or, or is it different? Very different. Very different, and it's and it's a story I've told a few times. But what happened was, um, we had a baby, me and my wife. We had our first baby, and at that time, I was working full time. I was a I was a database marketing analyst. It's very glamorous. It's very exciting. It all was good. He had uh, my wife had a year off uh, on maternity leave, 
to look after the baby. And then after that year, she went, she had to go back to a full-time job. I was in a full-time job and, and he had to go to full-time nursery. I just, it just wasn't something that I was prepared to cope with. You know, that I was obsessed with him at that. I mean, I'm still obsessed with my kids anyway, but at that time I thought, well, somebody else gets to see him for 50, 60 hours a week. And what we get the grumpy evenings and the weekends, you know, it didn't, it didn't feel right. And then at that time I was, I had photography as a bit of a, a bit of a, an obsessive hobby, I guess. And I just remember quite vividly, really standing in the garden with my wife one evening, just going, this can't happen. We, I, I'm not happy with him being looked after for 50 hours a week by somebody else. Somebody else gets the best of him basically. Yeah. And also get to impress themselves on him. And we're not getting that opportunity. So I said, well, I'm going to be a photographer. And she just said, where's the, where's the, how are you going to be? <laughs> You're not a photographer. And I said, no, but I really like it. So that's what I'm going to do. And that was really it. That was really, I just, from that day, it was really whimsical almost. It was, I just said, well, that's what I'm going to do. So I, from that day, I was, my sole focus was on becoming a photographer and turning this kind of obsessive hobby into a business. So where did the, no, where did the knowledge come from then? I know you said you, you were doing a bit of photography, but there's, there's a difference between doing a bit of photography and <laughs> doing photography. Well, yeah, I'm okay. I just kind of tend to jump into things. So we'd got married two years before this and I bought a good camera to take on my honeymoon. So that was the first time I ever bought a, what I'd call a proper camera, a DSLR. Right. Uh, and that was the Canon 400D. So my first, that was my first ever uh, proper camera, but only the kit, you know, it was the kit lens and all the rest of it. And really just, I bought a book with it because I, somebody told me, I can't remember who told me this, but somebody told me, don't, don't stick it on auto, like learn what the other options do. And at that time, obviously, like everybody, I was obsessed with making things blurry, giving things a blurry background. So my, that was my, really, that's all I wanted to learn. So I guess in between then and the moment when I said, well, I'm going to be a photographer, I was, I was just kind of, I'd read the odd website, maybe join the odd forum. You know, this was before really Facebook and all the rest of it was a big thing. There wasn't, there weren't Facebook groups. You had to join actual forum mm. websites. Mm. And then, you know, I'd maybe take part in little challenges in these forum websites. And it was just, it was very much a hobby. But as you learn as you go along, don't you? And I was, I was taking a lot of pictures. I was taking my camera pretty much everywhere with me, just learning as I went along. But from the moment I decided I was going to be a photographer, that's when it ramped up really. So then I started buying books subscribing to websites he had to pay for. And I remember it wasn't long after that, that I just built a website. You know, a friend of mine was shooting weddings as kind of a week, what you would back then have called a weekend warrior. Not sure if that term, term really exists well, I think anymore. Still, I think it still does exist. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a derogatory one, isn't it? I don't think it has the quite the same negative connotations. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. not. Yeah. Um, because back then it was definitely like these people who are, you know, yeah. breaking the industry. They've for invaded, people. they've invaded our space. How dare they <laughs> yeah. have characters? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I just went along to a wedding. I, well, the first thing that happened actually was after the the, the declaration that I was going to be a photographer was my cousin got married, and I took my camera and thinking that I was going to take some great pictures, and that really that day really showed me how how difficult weddings were going to be to capture. I don't know why I had an initial thought of going towards weddings. I guess it was because because I had a friend who was kind of doing it on yeah. The, on the I, side. I was going to say, was it your friend that, that's that's built your direction? Yeah, I think so. I think that was what it was. And and also I just kind of saw it as a potentially not I wouldn't say that I wouldn't use the word lucrative, but I saw it as a I'd be able to make money from it. So I shot my cousin's wedding, didn't do a very good job, learned a lot about the fact that I did not know a lot about photography and, and certainly photography of moving objects. You know, I was great at taking a picture of an of an apple on the sideboard at home. <laughs> but as soon as somebody was in a dark church moving at all, you know, it was just a terrible photo. So and I didn't understand why why they were coming out terrible either. So then again, my learning kind of ramped up again after that. And, you know, I, I had a job. I was I was honestly spending all day every day on the on the internet looking at photography. 
so then a few months after that, the, the, this friend of mine had a wedding and he just asked me to come and help him. So uh, I hired, I remember I hired, I hired a 7200 because the, back then I believed that, that if you were in any way professional, you needed a seven foot long white lens. So that's what I hired. And I got enough out of that wedding to make a portfolio. I was, I was, I knew how to build a website. So I built my own website with that portfolio. This was before anything like WordPress or anything existed. So you had to, you just had to build it from scratch. Dreamweaver and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I just, I built it in code. Did you? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, because I was a programmer back then. Of course, so, yeah, of course. So you had an advantage in that respect. I did. I had a lot of advantages yeah. really in the, at that time that it was a lot easier for me to get into the industry because of those, because of the things that I knew how to do. So building a website and I knew how to also run Google ads, which again, wasn't, wasn't really a mainstream thing back then. So built a website with this one wedding, stuck a load of Google ads on. And with it, before I knew it, I had 25 bookings and I was very cheap. So it's, you know, it's kind of a, a lot of people go, oh my God, 25 bookings. But, you know, I was charging 450 pound a wedding. But my philosophy really was if I was going to become a photographer, I had to do a lot of work as quickly as possible to develop a style and also just to practice. So the price point made it that I could literally just experiment at every wedding. Nobody really cared what they got out of it. Uh, I mean, they cared that they got a set of pictures, and I, but I knew I could guarantee a set of pictures. I just couldn't really guarantee they were going to be any good. And yeah, and then a year later, I'd done a I'd done a year of weddings and was able, was ready to give my job up. Well, I was kind of on the on the edge really because I'm quite a cautious person in a lot of ways. I had you know I had a guaranteed salary, and then we had another baby on the way as well. So I signed up for some mentoring. So I signed up for a year long mentoring, think, thinking that was going to be the thing that got me into full time photography, and it kind of backfired because it made me realize how stubborn I was in, in what I wanted to do. And I didn't really want to be told how to do it by somebody else. Mm. And I certainly didn't want to be told how to do it their way when I felt like I wasn't creating the best work in the world at that point, but I definitely felt like I had it inside of me to, to have my own style and to, to carve my own path really into the industry. Because uh, again, I was lucky at a time when wedding photography was quite safe and boring back then. So I did a couple of months of this year-long mentoring program and then, and then uh, gave it, backed out of it to do my own thing. Again, it was a conversation with my wife. So I was struggling a lot with having a full-time job, trying to give time to the family and also running what had become pretty much a full-time wedding photography business on the side. So something had to give one night. And I remember not, I didn't I didn't break down about it, but I just kind of said, well, I'm, I'm going to have to pick. And she said to me, well, just, just give your job up. So the next day I handed my notice in at work and I wasn't in a comfortable position business-wise, but uh, I probably only had... Uh, one or two bookings in for the future. Like I said, we had a baby on the way and bills to pay. But I really, really thought that if I had the time to give to the business, I could build it. And, you know, it paid off. It, it, there's a saying that, I, that uh, I heard once, which was leap and the net will appear. And the net appeared and caught me. And, you know, I've been sitting in the net ever since. Well, I love that expression. Leap and, and the great, net will appear. I th the first person I heard that from was a, a photographer. She's a family photographer now in Manchester called Anna Hardy. Yeah. That was kind of one of her life mottos. Yeah. And I, and I just thought, I just think it's great. I think it's, it is. I, yeah. di I didn't know it at the time. So I didn't realize I was leaping and hoping for a net, but mm. yeah, I mean, I never looked back from then really. I, it really paid, having the extra time to, to just invest in the business just really, really paid off. This this work-life balance that you talk about, this this quite intriguing because, of course, um, at the time that the children were quite young, so 
Um, you're switching your work-life balance from Monday to Friday to Saturday and Sunday. I know that weddings now happen all week long as well, but t- traditionally that's the way that's the way we look at weddings: Friday, Saturday, Sunday, perhaps. But now, of course, um, your children, and you can see that with your photography on your website of them, they're getting older, and so your work-life balance now, and perhaps that's um, an awkward way around for you. You're not there at the weekends when they're around, but you are there during the week when they're now at school. <laughs> A little bit. I mean, they, uh, obviously the thing that kind of triggered me becoming a wedding photographer was because I wanted to be a more present parent and, you know, be the main influence on my kids' lives. And, it, you know, my, by the, so I made that decision when my first uh, son went to nursery when he was one. And it, I wasn't able to be full-time as a photographer until he was probably nearly four, you know, oh, three okay. and a half, four. Yeah, yeah. But at that point we had another baby and i was able to then be at home full time with him so again my wife had a year off on maternity leave but after that i was i was a stay-at-home dad monday to friday most of the time and wasn't able to do a lot of work Mm. but my i've always thought to me it's the little things you know i love being here when they leave for school and when they get home from school or being able to pick them up from school or being able to take them to stuff or being able to go to sports day without having to ask somebody rather than just being here all weekend so to me it's it's not the hugest of deals that i'm not around at some weekends yeah. and also the you know these days i'm very lucky in a lot of ways in that i'm able to um really limit the number of weddings that i do so i only aim to do 20 a year really uh, wow. yeah um so i'm not it's not like i'm away every weekend either let's talk about style it's a funny old question to ask because some people say i don't really want a label neil i'm just a wedding photographer <laughs> that's what i am i'm i'm neither documentary or reportage or or traditional, or, you know, I am a wedding photographer. That's what I do. That's it, really. That, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, obviously, you just really, you can only take pictures of, of things in a in a way that you, appeals to you, I think. And I'm not particularly offbeat, but at the same time, I'm not particularly traditional. Uh, so I, th- I sit somewhere between the two, probably more toward traditional than offbeat for the vast majority of my work. But I like to make impressive photos but that could be that's not one to me that's not one style and it's almost like that can't be a style but um i guess my pictures are a little bit darker than a lot of people's uh you know i tend to expose expose for highlights more often than not if possible Mm. which which tends to give give my images a darker look Uh, and that's definitely put clients off over the years but i'm quite happy to put people off uh, because then it means the people that are turned on to it are more turned on than if you were just trying to make generic wedding photography. So that's always been a philosophy really is to not, is to try my hardest not to make generic wedding photography and just to take what I, th- what I feel like is a cool, is cool photos of, of the wedding that's in front of me. And and, and I think my style is, it, it can change from wedding to wedding as well. It kind of molds a little bit to the, you know, to the style of the venue or to the people or to the general theme of the wedding. I, I know that a lot of people see my work as a little bit darker and I even have clients saying, we want, we, we want you to do it, but we want it to be brighter. And, you know, often those people are getting married in a, in a marquee in the middle of summer. So I'm, I always say to them, well, it's going to be brighter because yeah. that's the style of your wedding. I don't really come and trying to take dark, moody pictures, but I know a lot of people over the years, that's how they've lab- that's how they've labeled my work is, is maybe a bit darker and a bit moodier. Do you think people yeah. are too, uh, too easily look for a style or a label about I do, yeah. Yeah, do you? Yeah. yeah. And also you, I, I've always been wary of it myself because I feel like you can pigeonhole yourself a little bit. This again goes back to the whole ideal client thing. I feel like I, you know, I do these twenty-ish weddings a year, and I feel like I do twenty very different weddings every year. Yeah. So that my weddings don't have a style to them. There's not like I'm not always doing TP weddings, or I'm not always doing, uh, you know, big lavish 
uh, weddings in in posh hotels you know i'll do a tp wedding the next week i'll do a posh hotel wedding the next week i might do uh an outdoors wedding in a field you know because i haven't overly pigeonholed my style and if you do read you know that page that i've made on my website about style it's more about the fact you know what i like in photos which is mainly i I like photos to be in color because that, mm-hmm. because that's how I see and that's mm-hmm. how I shoot. I always shoot in color. I know there's people who, for instance, always have their camera LCD or viewfinder on a black and white mode because they will shoot and see in black and white. And now, obviously, with those types of people, that their work will then be predominantly black and white. I knew the way around, really. Mm. I guess, yeah. I mean, that's that's it's very very difficult. I think. I mean, I'm very envious of people who are, who are able to say, "Well, my style is this, 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 and this." Yeah. But at the same time, I'm quite happy to not be able to say that about my own work. Because- and I'd, I'd say you probably change as the years have gone on as well, wouldn't you, Adam? I have definitely. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it as well goes back to the. You have little realizations, I think, as as you go th- as you go along, and also you don't you never want to get bored of your own work. And I felt feel like if I was just churning out the same thing all the time, I'd, I'd probably have got bored of it and moved on to something else by now. Yeah. Uh, but I'm definitely not bored of it. And the thing I realized this was probably year before last was I love the pictures that I take of my own family, and a lot of people have, all, have very kindly complimented me on those photos. And even sometimes have been bold enough, and and I like people who are happy to express their opinions to say they prefer those photos to the way that I shoot weddings, <laughs> and, and I, I kind of love stuff like that. And it made me it did make me think. And the thing is, when I'm shooting the my kids, is I only ever take what they give me. And I know somebody like you, as a, who is a, almost a pure documentary photographer, will say, "Well, obviously," but I never really had that same approach in weddings. I always felt like I had to give a little bit of direction or tell people where to stand in in relation to the light. If I had control, if it, if it was the type of, mo- you know, bridal prep or uh, portraits or, you know, even at other points during the day, maybe just to give a little bit of direction if I felt like I could make the picture better. But I never, ever did that with the with the kids. I'll never tell them what to do or where to go. Or, Isn't or, that interesting? You know. yeah. And so I guess over the last two years, especially, I've, trying to be, I've been trying to bring that approach more and more and more into my wedding work away from the portraits on the day. That's the kind of pictures that I love when I've without them realizing what I was doing, I was able to make these pictures. So yeah, I think that's the, that's the way my style has evolved, I guess, in the last two years is just to take what I'm given and make the best possible pictures out of it without any interference whatsoever. In this last year, what, what changes do you think COVID will, will, will bring and maybe leave? Oh man. I I mean, very difficult question to answer. I know. I think it's impossible to know. I read quite a bit of business stuff really online. And a lot of people said, well, first of all, the one train of thought is just, just don't make any decisions really about your business during this time, because it's impossible to know how, how our businesses are going to come out of it, you know, regardless of whether they're wedding photography businesses or whatever, that's just what ours tend to be. It's almost like you've got to ride it and then see how it, see how it comes out. I know a lot, one big, one big train of thought is that it's going to pair weddings back to what's really important, which is the people. And there's going to be less of the, I guess, the flowery stuff around the edges that we've all, that have just really overtaken or, you know, crept into weddings over the last five, 10 years. Yeah, I've always called it chair cover disease. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The other train of thought, and probably one that I subscribe to more, is that it's going to explode even more. You know, people are going to put more money into it and more and place more, you know, importance on these, these, these individual days that weddings could become even more elaborate and even more money could be spent on them and, and all the rest of it. When you're not hanging up your, 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 your camera, you're coming back out of retirement. That's all we need to know. It's definitely reaffirmed for me that this is my passion. This is what I want to be doing with my life is making photos and, and especially making photos at weddings because, you know, I've been doing it 10 years. 
uh, you do get a little bit jaded sometimes with thinking, oh, do I really want to go to 20 more weddings next year and keep doing this? Or And I'd, I've hit that wall a couple of times in the last few years. But this has really re- made me realise I probably was taking it a little bit for granted. And it is what I want to be doing. And I can't wait to get back to it. Uh, thanks on the Fujicast. To Adam Johnson. And of course, we'll have links to his work in the show notes on the shiny website, fujicast.co.uk. Just to mention for my other podcast, Photography Daily, which after you've finished here and not till then, head on over on all your favourite apps to hear the second parts this week to Misan Harriman, the first black male photographer to shoot a front cover for Vogue UK. It took 104 years for that to happen, and he has the story. Uh, the cover that he shot was the September one, no less, which is a, a very important seasonal one for Vogue. He has more on that, and he talks about the assignments he shot for the magazine about uh, famous and well-respected activists, including his memories of photographing Doreen Lawrence, the British Jamaican campaigner. I get so emotional even now talking about her because I, I I don't in general get starstruck because I've been lucky enough to just meet all sorts of hyper famous humans but I do get emotionally struck I, I, I remember waiting I got I always get everywhere early just a habit of mine and I remember getting there early and sitting in the car and thinking god i hope you're not gonna just start blubbing when you see her and on wednesday we talked to david buto the dc photojournalist who's been photographing president trump for this term and find out what uh, what it is that keeps him fascinated by photojournalism i think it's a it, it is a, a a desire and ultimately it's it's a privilege to be able to go to these places where events un- are unfolding and it's like you're watching history. Also, new features on the power of collecting books and what your pictures say about you as a photographer. That's all in Photography Daily this week on all the podcast apps or on the website photographydaily.show. Stories of life told by photographers. Right, back into the questions. Kev. Okay, this one is from Tom Verhoeven. And he says, I just saw the announcement of two cine lenses mentioning a T-stop value. Oh. Are they of use to photographers too? Mm. And why not, if not? Never done video, so sorry if this sounds stupid. Yeah. It's not stupid. Well, T-, T is, of course, clickless, isn't it? Uh, and that's why they're very, very good um, is cinema um, lenses, because you can, you know, if you need to change your aperture to, to control the light, then you can do it without it going pop. And, see, and seeing sort of sudden increases or decreases in, in light within your film. But I've never used one for photography. I must have, I, 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 there's no reason why not, I suppose. They're very manual in that respect. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you can use, I'm, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't be able to use them, but you wouldn't, why would you spend that kind of money? Because they are very expensive, yeah. typically. Um, I'm just looking at something here. I've just typed in. It's on petapixel.com. Yeah. According to the fellow what wrote this article, I can't see his name, sorry, says... Um, Mr. Petapixel. Uh, there, there are three reasons photography lenses manufacturers don't bother with T-stops. Uh, it says, number one, in-camera light metering will compensate for the minor exposure difference between two different lenses with the same F-stop, right. but different T-stops. The biggest transmission difference you'll get is about a third of a stop, which is no problem to fix in post-processing. Number three, T-stop testing. Every new new lens is expensive and time-consuming because of reasons one and two. It's not worth the investment for photography lenses. There's an answer. Hang on, let me... uh, So this is actually written by DLK. So have you ever used a T-stop lens then at all, Kev? 
Uh, I have fulfillment once briefly just as a, a trial thing. Um, but yes, never, never really thought about taking a picture with it. Yeah. Although they're not all unreasonably expensive. There's some, uh, well, there's, there's some pricier ones in, say, the Samyang range. Um, but also there's some quite reasonable uh, T-stop lens choices within the, the Samyang range. It's, it's worth looking up. Right, um, one from Sven Lohmeyer. Uh, dear Neil, dear Kev, thanks for the inspiration. As your podcast is independent from the Fuji brand, oh yes, we had that topic in the Facebook group last week, didn't we? And uh, yeah, we like to talk about photography of any flavour. Sven, you're right. Although clearly, um, I guess we'll be more knowledgeable with some stuff over others because of that flavour. But uh, Sven says, I've got a question. I'm, a, I'm in an endless gear decision loop, and you are the ones to untangle the knot. Since March, I've been working on a personal photo project, which I started since COVID lockdown during lunchtime instead of going into the, in, in brackets, the closed canteen. It's about my hometown, Bremen, uh, and Germany, especially the former industrial harbour quarter, which uh, sounds, Kev, like it's now trendyized itself. I'm out there, he says, with an Olympus Pen F, which works really fine because of its smart portable size. Two prime lenses, 35 and 90, full-frame equivalent, but I have a do-do-do gear dilemma. I'm searching for uh, inspiration for the next steps of this project, and, and I'm thinking about these following options. Nikon, Nikon, Nikon Z, or Fuji X-T4, or Leica Q2 monochrome. I've created XL pros and cons sheets, and overworked this sheet many times, but I'm still confused at what to do. Do I go full frame uh, with plenty of depth of field or uh, or inspiring film simulations and various prime lenses or black and white paradise? Perhaps you have an idea as, as well-experienced senior full-time professional masterclass photographers with the best podcast ever broadcast. Well, you know how to, uh, to flatter someone. What do we think, Kev? I mean, what do we think about what? Well, what? Which bit? What do we think about the, think, the, the I, spreadsheet I, testing thingamajiggy or which camera's well, best? I think we're going to make Sven's decision. Should he have a Nikon, a Fuji or a Leica? God, well, they're all, all so different, aren't they, really? Um, I, I can say um, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed setting up my X-Pro1 as a monochrome camera. And so, but if I had the cash and I could do the Leica, phew, yeah, I'd, I'd like it well. But equally, what about an X-Pro3 set up the same way with uh, all the advantages that brings of being able to see colour if you want to one day? And, and, and with the money difference being uh, between that and a red dot body, you could buy yourself a raft of glass too. But, but of course, Leica brings... Uh, Best part of, uh, what, 50 or so mega llamas. So, um, I mean, that's a punch. I'm not a Nikon man, Kev, these days, so I can't comment. What, what, would, your, what would your advice be, though? My, my advice would be to rent them, rent all three of them and see which one you like the best. Get rid of XL. Nobody needs that. Really? Pick it up, take some pictures, and then decide which one you like. But you've, yeah, I, I know you've gone down the spreadsheet route putting pros and cons, haven't you? Have not you for cameras and stuff. I don't. Well, I always, well, well I used to. That was to. for wives. <laughs> Kevin, <laughs> you've been in such a lot of trouble. I don't think she heard you. Oh, no, she did. Um, Sven, I think that sounds like the best uh, best decision, actually. You could you could, you could could rent them. I don't know where you would rent them in Bremen, I have to be honest, but um, there must be something, some way of doing that. A lot of the camera shops as well also, uh, you don't necessarily need to, you know, to rent them for a whole weekend or something because that will cost you money. But you may be able to, you know, go to your local, um, I don't know, Bremen, Jessup's, whatever it's called. And, and you know, they they might just let you borrow one for a couple of hours. True. Uh, borrow all three for a couple of hours. You know, you probably need to leave your passport there or something as, as collateral. But yeah. and just see. Yeah, I, I think that's the best way. 
Good luck with that decision. Right, Kev, yours. Okay. Um, right. We have one here from Denise Abbas. And uh, it goes, uh, my local photography group has been sharing photos online. Uh, it's a closed group for sharing and critique, not a social media thing. It's so helpful to get constructive feedback and interesting to see what people respond to. I try to do the same for others, which is easy when I like an image, but I struggle with how to talk about images that I don't like or understand. Can you suggest ways to talk about images in a constructive way? Hmm. I'm the the same as you, I'm afraid. I go a bit quiet if I don't like something. So what do you think of this? Mm. Well, Mm. we shall discuss. We shall consider. (laughs) Um, Actually, no, I've got some some interesting points on that, I think, because whenever I do um, my my kind of portfolio reviews and things like that. And, and again, when we did judging, ultimately what you feel about the image, if you don't like the subject, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a good picture. No. So there is only, there's three things you can uh, distill it down to. And that's whether the picture has good light, good composition and good moment. It doesn't matter what's in it. And if it has those three things, then you can at least look at it from a technical perspective and think, yeah, that's a really good picture. I don't like it personally, but it's a really good picture. Mm. You know, I, I don't really like scrambled eggs, but you know, people do and they love them and they're good. That could be a good scrambled egg there, but I don't like it. Uh, you know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. It's subjectivity, isn't it? And yeah. against objectivity. So yeah, that's what I would say. But obviously in, in the social media world and the, and the groups and everything. Yes. Uh, typically, if you don't like something, I, I, I feel it's better to keep your powder dry rather than going all fist blazing and throwing your fingers randomly at the keyboard. In my day, can't do it anymore. I tell you what, it's harder to be a new photographer these days because you get your critique whether you like it or not. Yeah, but I think to a certain extent, if you're putting your work out there in a public platform, yeah. you got to expect it. Yeah, that's you true. Know, I just had a comment literally just now coming on one of my YouTube videos and it literally just said, less talking. <laughs> that's it. But that's what your films are about. <laughs> and this, this was oh, on one on, of my I films. Go, I, I this was on my uh, JPEG settings film, which I spent oh, about three days building. Oh past that education less talking <laughs> yeah. Uh, well uh, yeah yeah <laughs> so at least it's less cruel than picking on physical uh, attributes isn't it uh, i just deleted that message with you? my special finger <laughs> <laughs> did you? right kevin I, I didn't really ask you at the the front but then we were sort of uh, talking about um about lockdowns weren't we by the way i think it'd be a great idea when we're eventually allowed to meet up again because we won't be doing our christmas christmas special this year we did a christmas special last year didn't we oh yeah that was ace Do you know this year's yeah. christmas special was supposed to be um it was a charles dickens one it's going to be a yeah. charles dickens one this year but phew, covid put paid to that but i was going to say we should do the first one we get together should be in the pub <laughs> who's the miserable bloke out of the christmas story or whatever it's called well, scrooge Scrooge, yeah, yeah. I, I want to be in. We could be in, or we could do a special Grinch. Yeah, I could be both. <laughs> I could be Scrooge. Just paint me green. <laughs> okay. Um, right. Well, so we, we were talking about COVID. So we didn't. I didn't. I didn't say what's the book this week, Kev. So uh, at this stage, I'm going to say what's the book this week, Kev. 
All right. Well, this week, the book is uh, Tony Ray Jones's American Color, 1962 to 1965. Fantastic. Yeah. No, this is a uh, widely available book. You can buy it. You can get it on Amazon. However, I got mine from the Martin Parr Foundation. They've got a great bookstore, online bookstore there. Um, Some good stuff on there that actually you can find some some real gems that in other places might be costing you a fortune. In fact, I'm waiting for a delivery today, not from them, but from somewhere else. Of a very very rare book that I shall talk about another time. Anyway, this one, Tony Ray Jones. Uh, Tony Ray Jones, of course, was a British photojournalist, and in fact, Martin Parr is, uh, you, you know, claims that Tony Ray Jones was one of his his kind of major inspirations. Yeah. Um, and this is this is what Tony Ray Jones himself called the his isolated sketches. Um, so they're color and they were all taken in the early days of his, uh, shooting time. Um, and he, he kind of explains in the, of course he's, he's, he's dead now, sadly, but you know, when this was, uh, when he talked about this work, he talked about his time in New York as the time where he basically practiced. And, and I think it was really interesting that he, he referred to these images as sketches, um, because obviously a draw, you know, a painter, a drawer often does sketch as a, as a, prequisite to doing the main work um so there's some amazing little pictures in here uh very uh they kind of remind me a little bit of um some of the joel mayowitz stuff some of the soul lighters color work um you know none of them are pin sharp (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) but guess what i just spent 30 quid on the book um yeah and it's a simple little book it's kind of um i don't know whether it's square or it's a little bit longer than square what do you call a little bit longer than square let's call it oblong oblong (laughs) oblong ish (laughs) oblong ish yeah um with with simple kind of um i would say eight by six prints in the middle of each page beautiful color i mean it's hard it's, it's always hard when i'm not with you because you can't see anything well i've called, um, I've called some of the, the shots that uh, have been featured on the net from this particular book up so i can see a few and i i he's a great observationist isn't he really i mean yeah. and you can see he and, and and almost you can when he's this sort of scrapbooky approach to it where he was just kind of collecting images that he could do something with later on yeah, of course. And remember, this is 1962. Well, 62 to 65. So, you know, this is difficult to get these types of pictures with the, the, the shadow work as well. And the shadow and light work yeah, is is, yeah. is great, you know. And, and a lot of this stuff is, you know, from a distance as well. So there's a lot of kind of uh, traditional New York police wandering around. Um, it's very, but the, it's you very know, eclectic, though, isn't it? I mean, I was just looking at a few here. There's one of, of some rails here. You were just talking about the shadow play. With the red light in the mm. foreground, the, the sort of rails running off into the background, um, right, right next to a, an image of lots and lots of people who just happen to be standing on a uh, on, on a harbour here. Well, it looks like a harbour anyway. Yeah, I, I agree. It's very eclectic, and like I say, it's, it, you know, you, you said it right. It's sketches, I suppose. Um, but when we talk about that previous question we had from Denise about, you know, how do you decide if an image is good or not? Uh, you know, we, we mentioned light composition moments. You, there is like that in every single one of these pictures. Not every single one of these pictures might interest everybody. But when you break it down to those three parameters, they are composed well. There is something interesting going on in them. But most the, the thing that hits me the most is the composition is, you know, is that I hate that idea of the rule of thirds and stuff. But if you, you know, if you if you do deconstruct it, then you will you'll see that they are really well composed images. Um, I love the one of the uh, the lady leaning against the um, the kiosk, and there's the the 
American flag draped in the that's corner. The you can yeah. just see the yeah. New York yeah. policeman. Yeah, that's that's, um, that's the front cover image uh, on. Uh, obviously, different pressings sometimes have different front cover images. It, but the one I'm looking no, at, it is, it is yeah. the front cover image. Yeah. 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 But yeah. I mean that uh, there's plenty of shooters these days um, that shoot in that style. They get very close to somebody. Yeah. They shoot through or by them or through an arm or, um, and uh, what's in the background is 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 obviously the focal point of the the picture. But there's this this, yeah. I see a lot a lot of people are uh, have been obviously inspired by photographers uh, making compositions in this fashion. So there's there's a good um, there's a, a good five or six in- page introduction by um, Liz Joby. And uh, it's quite interesting. And she, she, part of the conversation that she had in the discussion says that the reason we shot in color right off the bat was that it was easy to see the work on the same day. Neither of us had a dark room. So the practicality of life was spend $2 on a roll of film or whatever it costs and $1.50 to have it processed. And you have it at five o'clock in the afternoon or right the next morning and you can see your work. We were two young novices and we didn't know any better. And we only wanted to see the work as fast as we could. Uh, as fast as we could get our hot little hands on it. It's a youthful tactic, like today's youth shoots digitally, so they can look at them while on the street. It's a matter of speed. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. I didn't realise that would have been the reason you would have shot colour in those days at all. Um, yeah, colour was always, I mean, not that I ever did film shooting, but it was always faster to, to kind of get, get back. Um, but yeah, I love the way she says, get our hot little hands on it. Yeah. That's it. She's an in, she would have been in the Instagram generation. <laughs> Absolutely. Need to get my hot little hands on that. I wonder what that's Tony Ray Jones, American Colour, 1962 to 1965. We will, of course, link to it yeah. on the uh, Fujicast website, show notes. I tell you what, it would, it would have been interesting to have seen that. Well, I mean, I know it's a, a book all about colour, but uh, it would have been interesting to have seen that in, in black and white tones, wouldn't it? Oh. Well, you know, so the Tony Ray Jones um, is there, there's. I often talk about this when uh, you know when I'm speaking to other photographers. His notes that were found in his camera bag after he died. Right. They are they're really important, and and I show it to people, and and I don't want to sound kind of like I'm uh, I'm saying that this is the the rule that we should all live with, yeah. but uh, it's brilliant. If you type into Google Tony Ray Jones notes, um, I think there's actually an article on my uh, F16 website about it as well, and it's his approach, and it's handwritten, and there's there's like eight or nine points on this. I'll read them out because it's really interesting. He he was a wonderful photographer, went on to be a you know very famous. Um, British photographer of the genre, of the generation. Number one, be more assertive. Um, sorry, be, be more aggressive. It says aggressive, not assertive. Right? Yeah, um, and it's that's underlined. Okay, in double red. Get more involved. Underlined in double red. Mm-hmm. Stay with the subject matter. Be patient. Patient. Underlined in double red. Take simpler pictures. There we go. That's very important. Yes. Simpler pictures. Yes. And simpler is underlined in double red. See if everything in the background relates to the subject matter. There you go. That's your composition. That's your storytelling all lined, all wrapped up in one sentence there. Vary composition. Uh, be more aware of composition. Don't take boring pictures. Boring with three red underlines. <laughs> right, okay. Getting closer. Uh, watch camera shake. His little notes say uh, shoot 250 per second or faster. Uh, don't shoot too much and not all at eye level. And then at the bottom it says no middle distance. But the takeaways from that is don't take boring pictures, don't shoot too much, and and the composition comes up a load. So, you know, when you're out shooting on the street or when you're shooting at a wedding, 
you know, again, we don't want to be the people that kind of say it's right or wrong to do certain things certain ways. But, you know, I really don't believe that if you go to a wedding and take 30,000 pictures, you're doing anybody justice. We're you know, not, not don't take boring pictures. Yeah. If you take if you take 30,000 wedding pic, pictures at a wedding and you're only giving them 400, that means 29,600 are boring. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's the fact of it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, don't shoot too much. There you go. Tony Ray Jones said it, and Tony Ray Jones was a god. So there. <laughs> so he said it. So that's it. Final. Steve Ford. Hello, chaps. Question that you may want uh, to save till December. Oh, I don't know. We could do this now. As Kevin and I both share a dislike of Christmas happening while we're still in November, or oh, we're putting up the Christmas tree, uh, or rather, by the time this would have gone out, the Christmas no, tree is, Christmas no. tree is up. No, why not? Why I'm not. I'm not even talking about. It's the 30th of November today when this episode is live. Mm. Christmas starts tomorrow. When we went into lockdown, no, one, no, no, when, no, no, no. Let me uh, just let me just say when we went into lockdown one, Sam um, said to me, um, I think it would have been early April, and it was all a bit depressed at that stage, wasn't it? And wait, and she said, should we get the Christmas lights out the out the out the um, the loft the attic? And then we can uh, we can you know just cover the house in them like we normally do, and um, and it might sort of get this thing going. So this this sort of feeling along the road like we're all in this together, that kind of. But you wouldn't have done that, I suppose, would you? No. <laughs> no. I wouldn't okay. Have. What are the three? Are we allowed to do this question then? What are the three photography related things that go into your Santa? I've been a good boy list. Must <laughs> things that you can. There must be things that real things that you can buy today. Photography related. Well. I don't, we Are these things that we haven't got? Yeah. On my good boy list, I don't know. Would it be photographic? God, blimey. This is a little bit like, you know, like Gemma often says to me, what is it you don't want me to get you for Christmas this year? <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> I don't know. I I tell you what I would love. This is what I would love. What I really, really want. Uh, I, what I really, really want, what I really, 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 really want is the Mary Ellen Mark Book of Everything. Is that expensive? Yeah. Oh, it's my. about 500 euros. All right. Um, and should, it's, it's actually it's it's three huge tomes of Mary Ellen Mark's work, and it's curated by her husband. Um, yeah, that's what I would quite like. I've just written that down here, but I'll cross it off because I didn't realise it was so expensive. Yeah. Well, no, hang on, because it's got free shipping. <laughs> yeah, but I think it should after that. <laughs> I think mine would be books as well. I haven't actually thought about any particular books, but I suppose it would be books. Um, I mean, I'd probably choose. Um, Tom Stoddart's Extraordinary Women, if, if it weren't for the fact I'd already bought it. So <laughs> I've, uh, that's a bit like what I do, really. I mean, see a book, buy a book. Not, not the one you mentioned, obviously, Kev. I don't, I don't, think, I'd, uh, don't think I'd choose Kit. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, as a professional photographer, you get the kit you need when you need it, don't you? It's not... Yeah. There's nothing... I don't know. You know, if, if, somebody, if somebody got me a, an old... Oh, TX1 Fujifilm TX1 film camera. I would I would be very happy with that. You'd Wouldn't know what to do with it, but it looked good on the shelf. Well, should we put that down? Because he asked for three TX1, so yeah. TX1, Mary Ellen, Ellen Mark, um, book of everything, book of everything, and and I'm going to write down here for you a 35 millimeter one point. 
it has to add some scratches in the right place. Scratches, yeah. Well, I, I reckon I could probably work that. I've seen, I've seen one just like it hanging around. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Go on, then. I think we've got time for one more. You, you can do that one. Okay, one more question. Um, this is from uh, Nick Norris. Chuck Nick Norris. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Chuck Nick Norris. Yeah. I had this on the other thread, but not sure if it got in, he says. Uh, Sorry, this is obviously from the Facebook group. Right. This is a question for you both. That there are there's two cameras left in the world, and you get to pick only one. Oh. One camera oh. is always grainy. The other camera is always a little bit out of focus. Right. Which one do you choose? Uh, well, it's going to have to be the grainy one, isn't it? Yeah. I think the little, the little bit out of focus one. Even though we talked earlier on about about focus being, you know, not necessarily something you should worry about all the time. I still think that would probably drive me wild after a time. Yeah, I go grainy. I love grain. Suits me. Yeah. Miserable, miserable green. Love it. <laughs> um, I haven't pressed the button. Hold on. I'm so out of touch with doing this because you, when you're not here, Kev, it all sort of flows. I saw the, the sound effects come in like the chicken and, and and clinking glasses. And when you're not here, it's just not the same, Kev. I miss you. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Ditto, as they say on, on the posh films. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that's it for this week. Um, keep your questions coming in. I must admit, you were great. You really uh, rose to the challenge, didn't they? After last week when we said, that's that's it. Uh, yeah. we, that was it for the, for, for the Fujicast. And then suddenly the questions came in. But that doesn't mean that you think, oh, Neil and Kev are okay now. They don't need my help anymore. Yes, we do. Um, so keep them coming in to click at fujicast.co.uk. Uh, or you can send them in, of course... Um, to the to the Fujicast Facebook group, can't you, Kev? That's where indeed on you, the right thread. You put you put a yes. Now, now that's a very good point. Don't go putting them anywhere else. You've you've got to put them in the one you you made the thread, didn't you, Kev? Yes. So you can put questions. Of course, the Facebook group is totally open. If you just want help on something, post it wherever you want, and people will help and reply and all that kind of stuff. However, if you want the question featured on the show, then it needs to go into the thread at the top. Right. Um, we'll call it. It's a little bit like the little pub at the back of the plane. Yeah, I was going to say it's like the pub at the back of the plane. <laughs> the threads at the top of the group. <laughs> the uh, that's the where your questions that you want us to feature. But of oh. course, use the group as you so wish. And if you want to uh, fly in questions left, right, and centre, then do that. Um, well, while yes. we're talking about the Facebook group, because uh, there has been a, a, a few sort of thoughts of late that oh, that's not very photography related, um, and it is it is a community, and so therefore, yeah, sometimes some of the stuff that appears in there may not be immediately photography related. Try not to call them out though. If you don't think it's um, correct, tell um, t- tell a grown up like uh, Steve or um, or Peter, obviously, and if they're not available, then you can come to the kids. You come to us, but but. Um, but but otherwise, yeah, just use the group for photography and try to remember it needs a little bit of context on there. That's it for this week. Music from Blue Wednesday, supporting music from the incredible artlist.io. Um, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Fujicast is an independent Loading Zone production. Email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk. Email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way.